a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode contains discussion of possible suicide. Please take care when listening. Regardless of your opinions about the 20-year war, the one obligation we have is to take care of the Afghan partners who worked directly for the U.S. government. They did it for us. From KSL Podcasts, I'm Andrea Smartin, host of Stranger Becomes Neighbor. In episode five of the podcast, we met two men who had served in the Afghan National Strike Units, or NSU, also called the Zero Units. They're a specially trained counterterrorism force who worked in tandem with the U.S. military and intelligence community. My guest today has an inside view into their experience, both in Afghanistan and here on U.S. soil. Gita Bakshi is a former CIA intelligence operations manager and counterterrorism expert. In her 14-year career, she spent four years in Afghanistan, where she was known in the field as Blackbird. Now, she's since left the CIA and started an organization to ensure that Afghan partners who served on behalf of the United States are supported as they resettle in America. It's called Famil, which means family in Dari. Gita was limited in what she could disclose about the activities of the NSU fighters, but she said they were on the front line of the war on terror. Think of it like the most dangerous places in Afghanistan where it was not safe for conventional U.S. military forces to operate. Uh, The zero units were the tip of the spear, right? They were the ones that were really putting their lives at risk to go after some of the most deadly targets. Um, And they were doing so with a selfless dedication, with a, um, you know, a pure loyalty to the U.S. government. Whether it was day or night, they were called upon to, to carry on some of the most difficult tasks on behalf of the U.S. government. Okay, so they were pursuing targets of interest for the U.S., I'm assuming a lot of them also had interest in that for themselves and for Afghanistan as well. Is that true? Absolutely. I think, you know, I've had so many conversations, especially now that folks are here, but so many conversations about why, why, why you did it, why I did it, why any of us did it. And the one thing that I can say for a lot of these, these folks is the idea of protecting humanity protecting U.S. interests, protecting U.S. personnel, um, protecting innocent Afghans, innocent Americans, and innocent coalition forces. That was the reason they did it. So in the end, there were more than 70,000 Afghans evacuated to America. I think how it's many like of 80, those over 85,000. How many of them were from the the strike units and their families? Based on the work I'm doing right now, we are dealing with a community of NSU or strike units, as you call them, that approximately 10 to 12,000 
heads of household plus their spouses and children, um, it's roughly 34 to 35,000 just from the strike units that are here in the U.S. When they first arrived in the U.S., you visited the camps where Afghans were temporarily housed when they first came. What did you see there? What What did you hear from the NSU that you talked to? It was interesting. You know, we would show up at, a, at one of the camps um, kind of unannounced because the way things were happening back then, it was, you know, I think the U.S. resettlement efforts had not been completely kind of ironed out. So my team and I showed up and within, I would say, the first few minutes of getting there, we recognized and some of the NSU recognized us. And it was like, oh, Blackbird, oh, so-and-so. You know, they immediately picked up familiar faces. Within 20 minutes, we were in a tent full of maybe 200 NSU members that were there because we had that common connection and that trust and that history together. And so um, we were, you know, we were overwhelmed with how many folks showed up and they were overwhelmed to see people that knew them and that they could trust. And... I remember in that experience, just hearing a little bit about what they had been through in the weeks leading to the evacuation and then during the evacuation and then since then. And first of all, they were very, very appreciative for being brought to the U.S. and being alive. Everything happened so fast for them. I can't imagine having been born and brought up in the U.S.A., what it would feel like to suddenly go through this massive change of events and be evacuated to a a different country and having to kind of breathe all that in and start over. And that's, that's what I saw. That's what I observed. It was overwhelming for them. And why, why did you decide to start Famille? What were the, the holes that you were seeing that needed to be filled? So I started Famil, I think it was like the third day of the evacuation. It was even before I could see any holes. But I imagined, look, coming from whether it's a military community or an intelligence community, um, you know, there's a level of trust. There's a bond for having been through many of the shared experiences together. Um, I've gone through that transition. I've been through that transition, leaving the CIA and going to civilian life, so to speak. Um, We see U.S. military go through that transition where it's, you know, the uniform comes off and civilian life comes on. I understood and my my teammates understood that this is going to be quite a transition for this particular community. And that's where Famiel was born. We wanted to be that lifeline for this community because we understand them. They understand us. We have shared trust. We have shared experiences. We speak in a way that we understand each other. And that just comes from years and years and years of building relationships in the field. That comes from a seamless partnership between Americans and the NSU. And we wanted to be here for them to give them that. And that's where Famiel came from. And I imagine since they worked with Americans, I'm wondering if they had expectations about what would happen when they got here and given their service How did those expectations compare with reality? It was like a night and day difference. So they had been promised that in in exchange for your service, 
you will get U.S. green cards. In exchange for your service, you will be resettled here in new homes. Your children will have an opportunity to, to go to school. You'll be given the best of the best jobs. Um, but the reality has not been that. Um, yes, they have opportunities to work. Their children have opportunities to go to school. The green cards are just a big question mark right now for the majority of this community. They're in limbo. That's not something your average American can solve. That's something that we have to look to our government and our leadership to, to solve. So their status in this country is still uncertain, even two years Unfortunately, out. yes, that is correct. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a shock for myself and I think for folks that work with the NSU community now, um, just to see how much they've done for our country. When we think about our counterterrorism successes in Afghanistan, they would not have been possible without the NSU. And quite frankly, Americans like me may not have come home safely to our families had it not been for the NSU looking out for us, going after very hard terrorist targets and ensuring that more Americans could come home safely to our families. You know, when you think about how much they've done for our country, it's very difficult, you know, by comparison to look at the immigration limbo that they're in right now. Something I heard from U.S. service members is so many felt this sort of deep moral injury with the evacuation of Afghanistan and leaving the country in the hands of the Taliban. It sounds like what you're saying is that moral injury is kind of extended if we don't take care of them now in our country. Absolutely. I tell you, you know, when I break this down, I think there's there's three different kind of um, three different themes that I see the NSU members dealing with. Number one, just like any combat veteran, right? You're dealing with the physical scars and the invisible scars of the war. Secondly, for these guys, they're dealing with the transition of leaving military life and going to civilian life. The third transition that they're dealing with, though, is the loss of their homeland. And then trying to find an identity in the country that they identified with for 20 years, right? There's a loss of identity, and that's something that we see instantly replaced when a green card shows up. It's it's almost wild. I mean, you see the, the burden and the pain on, on someone's chest just disappear when they get that green card because suddenly now they feel like they have a home and they feel like they belong somewhere and they feel like they have an identity and they feel like all the promises that were made to them were true and were kept. And they feel like now they can look at their future and their family's future. This immigration limbo, the longer this goes on, the more difficult it is for this community to keep hope. So we're two years into this now. What are the long-term gaps and struggles that you're trying to address? What does is, what is the work look like now? Does it feel still feel urgent to you? I tell you, what keeps me up at night is the issues around the immigration because it's twofold. One is trying to work through the special immigration visa process, the SIV process, trying to work through the process of applying for green cards, and now trying to work through the process of applying for reparole, right? So you're dealing with multiple federal agencies who have very different processes. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm born and brought up here. And when I read some of those forms, I have to read it like two or three times to understand what (laughs) that stress. I can't even describe it because I'm seeing it day in and day out. You know, the panicked phone calls about what's going to happen. Where's, how am I going to take care of my family? Families who have been left behind, who can't even, who haven't even been able to get reunified yet. The emotional toll this is taking is serious. And myself and my team, this tiny little organization, are helping these folks, trying to keep their morale up. I know you had an opportunity to talk to some members of Congress recently. Um, you've been traveling the country. I guess, what is what is the message that you're really trying to drive home? What do you want people to understand? Yeah, we've had some excellent engagements with Congress and members of the administration as, as well. Um, look, I think the, the number one message here is this. Regardless of your opinions about the 20-year war, the evacuation, the one obligation we have and the one just good thing to do is to take care of the Afghan partners who worked directly for the U.S. government, who were, you know, day in and day out servicing U.S. requirements. They didn't do this because they were getting paid glorious amounts of money. They didn't do this because they were trying to rise in rank to be an Afghan military general. They did this because they believed it was the right thing to do for the U.S., for our personnel, and for our interests. They did it for us. Americans suffered many casualties in that war, The Afghans, including the NSU, suffered maybe 27 times as many. And when we look at and when we honor U.S. veterans, as we should for the service that they've done to our for our country, these guys are no less. The only difference is they weren't born here. And so when I think about what message that I, you know, that my organization that myself would like to give out, it's to have their voices heard and their voices right now are hurting And their voices right now are looking to FAMIL and looking to the leadership of this country to take care of them. Because living in hopelessness and abandonment and fear about their future is just not acceptable. After what these guys and gals have been through, it's just not acceptable. And it wouldn't be acceptable if it was an American either. And and I'm serious when I say we, we need to take care of all veterans of this war. Because the number of times that we've gotten hopeless phone calls in the middle of the night where people just want to give up, we can't, we can't see that in this community. These people have worked too hard. They deserve a steady future. They deserve an identity. And right now they're in a purgatory. They don't have status in the U.S. And they're no longer, they no longer belong to Afghanistan. They're really in this limbo and The pain that this is inflicting on families is serious. The emotional distress is serious. The the concern about their futures is is serious. Are there places that you're finding hope? What What are the sources of hope for you? I believe that we have had some very positive conversations with Congress and members of the administration, and I'm very hopeful 
that a deeper understanding of what the community is facing, as well as what issues may be occurring on the bureaucratic side that can be resolved. I'm hopeful for that, number one. I'm hopeful every time I meet an Afghan family who, despite going through this pain and difficulty around immigration, they still have a big smile on their face and they're, they want to work hard. They, they want to see their kids grow up and be successful. They don't want to be on government assistance forever. These are guys and gals that worked tirelessly. They're very, very hard workers. And they've been at work since the day they got here. They've been paying taxes. They don't want to be on government assistance forever. That gives me hope. Just seeing the community grow and try to overcome hardship gives me hope. I'm so proud of the NSU community for taking care of each other and working as quiet professionals to stay on the right path in the U.S., that path to U.S. citizenship, because that's really what they want. So a question that keeps coming up in the podcast is what is the responsibility of the government, the established resettlement agencies? They're they're meant to represent all of us collectively, right? And as so I'm wondering, as regular people who just want to help our newest neighbors, how much can individuals do? Because what I see is that a few people are carrying a lot of the weight of this. Um, people like yourself, military veterans, some very determined volunteers are bearing this responsibility. So on the one hand, I'm thinking, you know, you're the people who care the most, who are familiar with what is needed. On the other hand, it's a lot to ask of very few people. So how do you think about it? How much of this responsibility should fall on private citizens? Um, Look, I think private citizens, I will say the the one common um, conversation I'll have with private citizens is, They'll ask, oh, what does Famil do? You work with Afghan newcomers. Isn't it all isn't it all resolved now? Like they're good now, right? And when you start breaking down the eviction notices, the loss of income because of the work permit, or the amputee needs, which is something that's not covered entirely by by Medicaid. And in some case, in some states, it's not covered at all. But when you break it down for your average American, they go, I had no idea. I had no idea this was going on. There's a bunch of Afghans in my neighborhood. I thought the resettlement agencies are still paying their rent, paying for their, you know, their utilities or paying for their food stamps or their health. The average American may not realize that that's not the reality. And so what I would say is for your average American, if you have Afghans in your community or, you know, um, you're interested in learning more about what the Afghans in your community may need, just connect with them, you know, especially for the NSU. And I can say this for, for, you know, most of the Afghans that we've met with since, since the evacuation, these are people that, you know, they want to work hard. They want to establish their future here in the U S they're good people. You just have to turn and have a conversation with them. And you never know that neighbor who, you know, you see walking his kids to and from the bus stop. He may have done something really amazing for this country, He may have saved someone's life um, without us even knowing it. So just go and and be a friendly neighbor and and engage with them, talk to them, understand them. Um, You know, despite what people might think, 
they they have a very strong exterior, but some of them are hurting inside and they really need to connect with people who understand them and can help them stay on the right path. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And I appreciate you caring so much about this topic. After our conversation, Gita sent me a voice memo to let me know that a 25-year-old NSU member had died. Hi, Andrea. I wanted to pass along a quick update. Um, So earlier this week, um, early August, I received that dreaded late-night phone call from one of my teammates out in Texas. And um, he informed me that One of the veterans from the NSU community had um, drowned in a lake that day. News reports from San Antonio, Texas, said the man walked from the shores of a lake, reaching a drop-off where the water is 20 feet deep, and he went under. Gita wrote a memo on behalf of her organization, FAMIL, addressed to members of Congress and the administration, calling it a tragic loss, potentially involving a death by suicide. As we learned more details about um, about the individual whose name is Salim, we learned that he was struggling with um, a lot of stress, anxiety, confusion. Um, he had shared with with his friends even the night before that um, he was feeling hopeless and wasn't sure what his future would look like and wasn't sure if he wanted to live anymore. Um, He was really worried about his family and their safety since they had been left behind. You know, as a result of his work with the NSU and his affiliation with the U.S. government, his family was at risk and he wasn't sure if he'd ever be able to see them again. Um, He was worried about his own future here in the U.S. as he'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for the opportunity to apply for permanent residency. These are things that have been promised to him and to others like him. Um, At one point, he was in one of our gatherings in Texas, and I remember um, being at that gathering and, and talking through the idea of taking care of each other and looking out for each other and just giving this community moral support and ensuring they knew that Famille was there with them, that their voices were being heard. Um, But unfortunately, this individual and others like him are still struggling with these feelings of abandonment and hopelessness and uncertainty about their future. Knowing, um, knowing that his life ended with such a tragedy, we want to make sure that we can continue getting support out to this community because these are folks that have put their lives at risk, put their families' lives at risk for this country, for our country, for the USA. And and we hope that we can continue raising awareness so that Salim and others like him 
are never forgotten. If you or someone you know are in crisis, please call, text, or chat with the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting TALK to 741-741. For information or to support Gita Bakshi's work with FAMIL, visit familusa.org. This bonus episode was produced by me, Andrea Smartin, and Nina Ernest. Mixing by Trent Sell. Cheryl Worsley is our executive producer. Thanks for subscribing to bonus content. It helps fund our work on more podcasts like this. If you could also give us a rating and write a review, it will help more people discover the show. And if you like us, tell your friends. For more on Stranger Becomes Neighbor, please visit our website, strangerbecomesneighbor.com. Thanks for listening. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is a production of KSL Podcasts.